Welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. Before we get started today, I want to do a thank you to all of you who have sent me messages about the Self Awareness Emotions podcast. It was a bit vulnerable of a podcast for me to do, and I really appreciate the feedback. So thank you. Today, I'm going to talk about what you need to bring into the room as a leader. And I work with leaders. I work with leaders, managers, entrepreneurs, right? I believe that we are all leaders. We're leaders of our lives. And there's many different aspects of our life we're leading, whether it's our own life, our families, maybe you're a leader within your family of origin. And maybe you don't self-identify as a leader. I know because I have some clients that resists that even though they have a title that is a leadership title. First off, and for ask you to embrace being a leader, whether your title at work states it or your position in life, you may not state it, but when you look around, you're like, wow, I do lead a lot of things, right? I lead a lot of people. It doesn't have to be paid work. It can be unpaid work because anytime we give of our time, that's a very valuable resource. So I was working with a client and he was really proud. He was sharing with me a win because he had been meeting with the staff and they had these goal meetings and he was giving feedback, which has been a huge, huge step of improvement for him, right? And it takes a lot of courage to get feedback. And it's something that we don't realize as we do it. We know as leaders and as owners that we're supposed to do it, but we often don't know how to do it. We may be conflict avoidant, so we may not know how to do it. But he had these meetings, he gave feedback, there were boundaries established, and there was going to be accountability towards this goal with one of his employees. And I asked him, I said, do you believe your employee can meet that goal? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. He goes, in fact, I think my employee can do better with that goal. But this is the first step into that bigger goal. And I love that he recognized that, right? Because often we're like, oh, I'm going we're gonna to do this big, hairy, audacious goal. And for some people that can be really inspiring. For many people, it can be rather deflating and demoralizing. But so he realized that and he gave this initial goal with an accountability measure. Now, here's the thing. How often when you're going into a meeting with an employee, with somebody who may not be doing the expectations of the workplace, do you often go in focused on what's not working. You know, we can get all in our head of like, I could get fired, they could get fired, the business can go down, it could be a total shit show of story fondling and spiral falling down. It's common humanity that as leaders, bosses, managers, we're often dealing with what's not working. And I have yet worked with a leader, a manager, a boss, board of director that is thrilled to have a meeting about giving feedback. Never are they like, oh, yay, Karen, yippee, skippy. I can't wait to do this. And like, they often look at me or they're on the phone with me and they're, it's like dead silence. It's like, oh, do I really have to? There's often all this magical thinking like, oh, let's just figure it out. I'm like, how's that working for you? It's not, right? 
The reason we don't like giving feedback is that it takes courage, which we often don't think of, right? Because before I did this work, I think courage, never thought of myself as a courageous person. I didn't have that self-awareness and identify that. But giving feedback takes courage because we don't know how it's going to land for the other person. So it's really vulnerable, right? Vulnerability is uncertainty, emotional exposure, and risk. And oftentimes giving feedback, it's subjective, right? It's the way we're perceiving it to be. And so there's not necessarily a black and white right or wrong, even though we may think we're on the right of it. And I have definitely had those words come out of my mouth saying, I'm absolutely on the right side of this from my perspective. (laughs) But giving feedback takes courage and vulnerability. And one of the reasons it's vulnerable is because we don't know how the other person's going to feel about receiving this. And many of us, to complicate matters, many of us have been taught we are responsible for other people's feelings. So we don't want to say anything to hurt their feelings, right? Or maybe you're like, I'm not responsible for their feelings, but I don't want them to either get mad or get upset or to cry because then what am I supposed to do with that? And that's, I do a lot of coaching on that as well. So we go into this, well, I'm just not going to say anything and they're going to figure it out. Side note, that is magical thinking. And usually how that magical thinking leads to is it leads to resentment. And I'm going to read you the definition of resentment from Atlas of the Heart. This is like my go-to encyclopedia. I always go back to it. So I, I encourage you to have a resource like this where you can go and really look at it because it helps you get more details of what something is and you get a better understanding. So according to Atlas of the Heart, resentment is the feeling of frustration, judgment, anger, better than, and or hidden envy related to perceived unfairness or injustice. It's an emotion that we often experience when we fail to set boundaries or ask for what we need, or when expectations let us down because they were based on things we can't control, like what other people think, what they feel, or how they're going to react. And what I would add to that is in this situation, when we have a expectations and we don't have control over what people do and don't do in the workplace, but we aren't clear with the expectations, right? We have these covert expectations and thinking they're going to figure it out. All of this magical thinking, right? Leads to resentment. Here's what it looks like in real life on the surface. It looks like us getting mad that they don't figure it out. And one potential outcome is we can become passive aggressive to them and say something that's very passive aggressive, where it's kind of nice on the surface, but it's not nice. We're judgy. We can be snippy or short, right? Those are ways of how it shows up in those rooms, in those spaces. The other thing we do is we back channel. We complain to others. We don't work on solving the problem with clear and direct feedback with the person. Instead, we talk about people to other people which then creates even more distrust, whether it's in an organization, a family, a friend group, or a work environment. Let's not back channel. Direct conversation is way, way better. So the relationship starts to fracture. And if you're back channeling, it's actually fracturing other relationships because they're like, well, if you're talking crap about them, what are you saying about me? Now I give you that. There was a long time. I wasn't even aware of that. I thought, wow, they're telling me this stuff. I didn't think, oh, what are they saying about me to other people? Because if they're telling me this stuff, right? I didn't have that awareness. Now I see that more clearly. So we often get with this whole idea of giving feedback. We're so distracted with this process and this experience 
that we also lose sight what else we need to bring into this room when we lead others. So when we walk into this room for feedback, we need to bring in feedback of what's not working and being really clear without attacking the other person. They're not good or bad. Focus on the problem instead of the person. Feedback of what needs to be improved. And here's the thing. It needs to be highly detailed. We like to talk in these big things. It doesn't really land. Maybe we're distracted. Maybe people are on their phones or on their computers, or they're just in so much shame that it's not even getting through. So it does need to be highly detailed. Get really specific of what it looks like. Brene calls it painting done. Paint what done looks like. If you don't like that term, you can say, this is what done looks like. The other thing I would ask you to do or invite you to do is ask them to share with you what they understand done looks like. This is really important because we talk at a lot of people, they shake their heads yes, and then we get really pissed off because we're like, what just, what happened? Like two weeks later, we had this conversation. This is what we agreed to because when someone shakes their head yes, there's an agreement, but they're nodding yes, nothing was computing in and they walked away. It was another passive aggressive attempt on the other person's part to get out of that meeting. They were approval whoring, right? So it's really important to understand what done looks like from their perspective. And maybe we need to make some tweaks, feedback right there. And probably you're going to need to circle back, give space, and then circle back. Maybe it's a day, two days, a week later to review it and give more feedbacks and tweaks. We get so into perfection and time management that we're like, oh, we should just say it once and it should happen. No, it takes like a thousand times. I say things a lot. So feedback of what's not working, feedback of what needs to be improved, really clear and highly detailed, and then getting them to tell you what they heard. And with this feedback of what needs to be improved, the question I'm going to ask you is, do you believe this person is capable of achieving this outcome? Are they capable of achieving what done looks like? Whether it's this person, this team, this group, do you believe that it is possible? I'm not asking for magical thinking or the fairy tale ending. We all get those, right? But does this person or this team or the staff really have the capacity to do this? That's really important. Otherwise, you're having these stealth expectations where it's an expectation rooted in fear and shame. And it's based on magical thinking. It's like, oh, once we have this, it's all going to be so much better. That's a bunch of BS. It doesn't work that way. Once we move towards this, there's going to be more messes uncovered. That's, that's the process, unfortunately, or fortunately. So we need to check in with ourselves when we're giving feedback, do we believe that this is possible for this person? Do we believe in them? They may not believe, but do you believe in them? And if not, maybe you need to recheck what needs to be improved. Maybe it's too big. Like, right, notice my client earlier, he gave a smaller goal, a quarter one goal for his employee. There's bigger goals and bigger dreams he has for this employee. And he believes this employee has bigger capacity but he's stair-stepping. So I'm going to bring this to swimming to explain this a bit. Now in the sport of swimming, I don't go around telling parents that their kid can be an Olympian. That would be magical thinking. There's up to 45, it's between 40 and 54, actually 40 and 54 
athletes every four years who make the Olympic team. And it depends on if they, like if you're Michael Phelps and you're swimming multiple events versus if you have one person that swims one event, then you have more people. It's a, it's not complicated, but right. But it's between 40 and 54. That's every four years. That is a very small percentage of the millions of kids that grow up swimming in the U.S. who have that opportunity to make it. So I don't tell people like, oh, I believe your child can be an Olympian. That would be (laughs) really magical thinking and a lot of false promises, right? And that would be against my integrity. And at some point, people wouldn't trust what I was saying because it's like, oh, she just dreams big, but she doesn't really follow through. Now, college swimming, on the other hand, there's a wide range. There's the power five schools. And those are like the SEC schools like Alabama, Florida. There's the big 10 schools. There's currently the Pac-12. There's ACC. There's Texas, right? There's all these different big schools. So there's that top tier. And there's mid-major division one, there's division two, there's division three, there's NAIA, and there's community college. So if kids want to swim in college, it's about finding the appropriate level for their skill sets and how they want to choose to spend their time. Not everybody can swim in that power five, but you know, there are certain things that they could do and there may be constraints of what they need to do to focus if that's what they want to do. But it's not magical thinking. It's about finding the, the, the best placement for them. Now, high school swimming and I live in a town that the high school team has been highly successful over the decades. But for the most part, like everybody can be on the high school team, right? That is a very inclusive thing. So I would encourage a lot of kids like, yeah, you you can go and be a part of your high school team, represent the Blue Devils. How cool is that? Go on, you know, go on bus rides. It can be a lot of fun. I believe in a lot of kids being able to do that. And then there's the learning to swim and becoming swimming proficient. Now, here's the thing on this one, I believe everyone can learn to swim, whether they're missing limbs, whether they're five years old or 86 years old. I've coached the range, disabilities, developmental disabilities, physical disabilities, wide ranges of ages, previous trauma with drowning. I truly believe everybody can learn how to swim. So I have huge belief in that and being proficient is very concrete. It's about swimming 300 yards in under 10 minutes continuous with proper side breathing, right? And so there's some tangible goals in there. And I totally believe it. Depending on the goals, I have to check in with myself. If I have a parent that says, I want my 10 year old to become an Olympian. I can't believe in that. There's so many other things we need to do before we even got to have that conversation, right? It may be that we need to work on swimming, becoming proficient, swimming the 300 yards in under 10 minutes. I'm not joking, right? So Checking in with what you believe is possible for the people that you lead is really, really important before you walk in the door and give feedback. And this is what has made me an effective coach is that while I bring in constructive feedback, not always, I mean, sometimes, you know, I'm human, I have errors and I bring in constructive feedback and I typically do it with directness. I'm very direct. As you can tell from this podcast, I really believe in clear as kind but I also have this belief. So whether it's my clients, whether it's the athletes that I coach, whether it's a team that I'm leading, it's that belief in them, in the mission, in the quest that we're going after. I believe in that. And one of the things that I know about the swimmers is that I I believe in the swimmers, right? Like, cause my goal is the first goal is we're going to become proficient in swimming. I know about how long it takes. I have no idea how we're going to get there. Every kid may be a little bit different. I've got a pretty good toolbox. 
We're going to commit to the best case scenario and manage risk, right? Nobody's allowed to drown. Now, what the obstacle often is, because the kids are pretty like, once they, once they have some trust and they know like we've got them and they're not going to drown, they're pretty eager to be there. And they get to be pretty proud of themselves. Kids are pretty amazing. If we could dial up our inner child, sometimes we might be able to achieve a lot more. But sometimes the obstacles, and it's not to blame parents, it's really hard to be a parent, right? It's really vulnerable. Oftentimes it's the parents who may not believe in their child, or they may have magical thinking along with their own shame and fear that their child may be that one person who doesn't learn how to swim, right? Having those stealth expectations. One of my best friends, this is how I met her. Her daughter had started swimming. She was eight years old. This is in a in the nineties. And she came up to me and she was so afraid. She's like, see that kid in the pink cap. Can you keep an eye out on her? I'm really afraid she's going to drown. I'm like, of course we've got her. And often along the way, as I was coaching her and developing her daughter, her mom would say, well, you know, I just want her to swim for fitness. I don't expect her to be a superstar. You know, I don't expect her to do college. And I was like, we don't know what she's capable of. How about we just keep swimming? right? Her daughter went up going to a big time college, was an aquatics athlete, right? Had this career. So sometimes I have to like kind of help the parents stop disbelieving. So we have the space for the believing, right? So believing, I've had a lot of process and practices with this believing. When we lead people, our belief is so important. It doesn't mean And I really want to clarify this. It doesn't mean just because we believe we're going to live happily ever after, right? That fairy tale ending. It's a fairy tale, folks. In real life, we can believe and we may fall short. And there is disappointment. I get that. There is disappointment. There is heartache. Most often when there's, even as we do that, there probably, my hunches, has been forward movement. So we're better off. We're further along than when we first started. So I want to talk about that disappointment. So often we don't want that disappointment. So that's why we try not to believe because believing is vulnerable. And that's why parents struggle with it, right? Because parenting is so vulnerable. There's so much uncertainty. There's so much emotional exposure. Really, there's a lot of shame and comparison. Like, look at this kid. And what about my kid? And is it possible? And our own limiting beliefs about ourselves, they show up with our kids because they're part of our DNA, right? It just becomes this total shit show. So parents really struggle with believing because what if they're wrong? What if they believe and they become disappointed? Like that's one of my client's big fears is what if I believe in this and I become disappointed or I feel disappointed really? Cause that's a feeling, but here's the thing. It's a feeling. And like I talked about in the self-awareness, growing your self-awareness episode with emotions, feelings move through us in about 90 seconds right? And I'm still grieving the loss of that significant person in my life. I've had good days and I've had tears and I've had, I've had a bit of anger, right? As I was driving down past his town and I thought the other day, I thought, wow, I would have called him. I have all these emotions and I have gratitude and I have joy. I have all of it. So we are afraid to feel disappointed. So then we make ourselves small and we don't believe but then aren't we living in our own disappointment because we're making ourselves small or we're not supporting those that we love because we're afraid to believe. When I believe in others, and I may be wrong because we may not achieve that goal, but it costs me less and it costs them less than dealing with the emotions of frustration, right? Of not believing and playing small and the armor to put up and the energy costs. 
when we believe, there's determination and commitment to figuring it out. There's a desire to keep moving. And we're going to fall down and we're going to get back up. And sometimes we're just going to sit there, maybe even throw a tantrum. But falling down and getting up, that's resilience building. And that will help us move forward. We may not make the desired outcome, but when we believe in those that we are leading, it's pretty darn mind blowing what can occur in that space. And that takes courage, my friend. Now, when you are in a room giving feedback, you're going to feel vulnerable because let's face it, we suck at giving feedback. My clients are practicing hard. I continue to practice. It takes a lot of courage, right? We do it. We learn from it. We figure out what we can do better. We let go of what didn't work. We learn from that, but we work on practicing giving feedback because what we've known to do and what has happened in a lot of workplaces that created a lot of toxicity and there's been a lot of scarring. I think the number is like 71% of people have had a toxic workplace or a toxic box, right? Who maybe knew how to rage or how to be passive or how to be passive aggressive. But what we don't know is that space in the middle, right? Between raging and passive is a space of compassion. And it's hard because it's a continuum and it's not really clear where the lines are. There can be more fierce compassion or softer compassion. Am I being too direct and tough? Am I being too nice and enabling? Compassion is often confused as weakness and soft in the general public, but really compassion is strong and has boundaries as well as clarity of what's okay and what's not okay, as well as the willingness to make mistakes and learn from it. So we need to fill ourselves up with courage so we can be vulnerable when giving feedback that we believe our teams and staff and employees can do. We need to fill ourselves up with courage so we can believe in others. Not false belief, but really believe and see their potential. It's about what we can learn in this process and who we all become as we go through this experience and believing is part of the process of lighting our way. Before you enter the room as a leader, as a manager or boss or a parent, please check in with yourself. Do you believe in the people in the room to achieve, to pursue the desired goals and outcomes? If not, then this is something for you to take a look at, unpack, and maybe readjust the goals and the outcomes so that you can be a leader standing in your authentic power and believe in them? Or maybe you need to unpack why you disbelieve. Is it because you're afraid of being wrong or you're afraid of being disappointed or you're afraid that it's really vulnerable and knowing that it's okay. Vulnerability is the pathway to what we want. And as we stand in our authentic power, ourselves as leaders, what happens is we allow the space for others to rise up together. Oftentimes power is thought as bad or good, but when I'm talking about authentic, it's your authenticness, which is going to be different than my authenticness. And Martin Luther King Jr. defined power as the ability to achieve purpose and affect change. And that's what we're doing when we're leaders and we're believing. When you stand in your authentic power and believe in others, We create the space for people to have the ability to achieve purpose and affect change 
on your teams, in your staff, in your families, in your organizations. All right, I'm smiling big for you. Hey there, before we go, I have a question for you. Have you subscribed to the show yet? This is an awesome opportunity for you to preserve your brain juice. I love the fact that I can subscribe to podcasts and television shows and they go straight to my iPhone or they go straight to my DVR and then I don't have to worry of, oh no, especially with television shows. Did I hit record? Is it going to be there? Or now do I have to watch it on demand and go through all the commercials? So go and hit the subscribe button. There's a link in the show notes and that will ensure you that you never miss a show and you can also save your brain juice for other things in your life. There's way more important things, but you and I will still be connected because the show will be waiting for you in your phone. Go to the link in the show notes, subscribe to the show so you can automatically get all the shows to your phone. On a lake, she is dreaming. She is drifting, never been so wide awake.